All right, we are back in Acts chapter 4, and we come back today in Acts 4, and the bold stand that Peter and John take to be obedient to the command of Jesus that they should bear witness in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth. That's the command. Now they've been ordered by the great council, the highest government in their land, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's in verse 18. That's what they were told, not to teach or speak at all in the name of Jesus. So the government's telling them not to obey Jesus. Their leaders are commanding them to sin. So they have to say, no, we're going to be faithful to our Lord and Savior. So Peter and John answer in verse 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now the council itself is uh, in a little bit of a bind here because Peter did a very public miracle, an astounding miracle, really an undeniable miracle, and everyone agrees that it happened. But instead of think about what such an astonishing work might mean, a work done in Jesus' name, instead of repenting of murdering Jesus, they just plot against the, the apostles. So remember, Jesus' own miracles uh, just a few months before did not move them to accept him or pay attention to him or love him. Uh, they just hated him all the more. They decided that the miracles were satanic. So that didn't do anything to move their faith in a Christward direction. But... Uh, so they have no problem dealing with his dis- disciples in the same way they dealt with him in a, in a harsh way. They decide though because everybody knows about this miracle and it's a popular exciting event. They decide right now they're just going to use intimidation instead of make martyrs out of these guys. So it's a political decision. You always have to worry about alienating the crowd, right? You can't alienate them too much or they come and charge the capital and take over and break things and hurt people. So if they think you're working against God, though, they're going to try to intimidate you to stop you. So that's what they're doing. So when they, verse 21, when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people. See, that's the, that's the thing that's in their head. They're worried about the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had performed. And remember, he mentions his age because he's been like this since birth. So four decades of everybody knowing about this crippled man and now he's perfectly well. So right now, threats are the weapon. And I don't think the apostles really saw these threats as idle threats. I mean, they did kill Jesus and they had a lot of power. And these people were well practiced in bearing false witness um, to the Romans if they needed their help or just to the judicial system. So it was a credible threat. So what does a threatened Christian do when he is threatened with trouble if he shares the gospel? Well, let's see what the first Christians did. Look at verse 23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. That's what they do. They prayed together in a spirit of unity. Everything they're about is directly related to serving God. So they turn immediately to him, as we all should when we have troubles and difficulties. 
Warren Wearsby said, the greatest concentration of power in Jerusalem that day was in the prayer meeting that followed the trial. That's so true. Not true to the eye that encompasses only what we see in this world, but true in all that is unseen and sovereign in the world, which is God's holy will. Now this is some prayer. And there's a reason that Luke includes the words of the prayer. He doesn't just say they prayed to God. He tells us the content of the prayer. Prayers in the Bible are a wonderful treasure. And certainly they can be models for our own praying. But there are much more than that. Scriptural prayers are often rich in doctrine, in great truths. Because these doctrines, when they're given to us in prayers, we we find in them a very real world connection between doctrine and practice a a prayer when you see it in the bible helps you take that great theology and see how godly people put it into play how they it makes them think and how they appeal to god and nowhere does doctrine and practice intersect more than in prayers and that's what makes the psalms so special because they're all prayers prayers built on great truths about god so They're always great learning opportunities and so we can learn from this prayer in Acts chapter four. Look how the very first sentence is rooted in God's greatness as the creator of all things. Verse 24, O Lord, it is you who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. So folks, the first thing you should do when you're in distress is to remind yourself in prayer of who God really is how much power he really has there are no limits to his power we know that but to rehearse that verbally to God in prayer strengthens your heart in that great truth his power is absolute in fact they use very interesting a word here in their prayer for God almost always the word Lord in the New Testament is the Greek word kurios a, a word that's used hundreds of times and it's the most commonly word used in the Greek language about various relationships involving rank or status or authority or things like that office Jesus is Lord kurios that's the common word but a different word is used here it's despotes and if you listen very carefully to that word you can hear our word our English word despot and that's a word we usually have in a negative connotation because when we talk about a despot we're talking about a person of absolute authority absolute authority over people another up human being with that kind of power like a dictator that's sort of the idea and as Americans we really chafe at that idea of somebody having all authority and us having to kowtow to him and um, bow to him and do whatever he says but in that time it did mean like an absolute ruler and it was often translated master because despot was with despotes was often the word used of a master slave relationship where somebody does have absolute authority over another human being so they're appealing to God as the creator of all the supreme despotes the supreme master the ruler of all things whatever he says that's what's going to happen that's what will be done so God's sovereignty is a major theme of this prayer and it should often be a major theme of our prayers God's sovereignty it's such a comforting thing when you weave that into your prayer life so before they make requests they rehearse this great truth that God rules his creation. The next thing they do is look to the scriptures, probably as Jesus had explained it to them. And they take note that God has said that things were gonna be this way. And so they turn 
specifically to a messianic psalm. That's why I think it's probably something that Jesus had recently discussed with them because he taught them out of the psalms about the Messiah. Psalm 2. So verse 25 is quoting Psalm 2. Let me read it for you. It says, Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, he wrote Psalm 2, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise vain things? or futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So they gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Why don't you turn back to Psalm 2 and we'll look at that in a little bit more detail just for a little bit. Now Psalm 2 was regarded as a messianic psalm well before the time of Christ, everybody recognized that this psalm is talking about the Messiah. And it's really interesting that it appears so early in the book of Psalms. If you start at the book of Psalms, you get Psalm 1, which talks about being a godly person. Then right away, you're talking about the Messiah in Psalm 2. That's the second song in the book of Psalms. So in the worship book of Israel, Messiah is introduced almost right away in Psalm 2. So verse 1, it says, that's the verse they quote that they're quoting in the prayer. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So these first verses are what is quoted in the prayer in Acts 4. But before we go back to that, let's look at these other features of the psalm briefly. Verse 3. This is, this is what the rulers say. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Whose fetters? Whose chains? Whose cords? Whose, whose binding are they wanting to cast off? God's. God's and the Messiah's, the anointed. The word Messiah just means anointed one. So that's exactly who it's referring to there. They want to be free of the Lord God, the creator, and his Messiah. Verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So here we see the intimate connection between Messiah and son the Messiah and sonship. He is the son of God in a very unique sense. That's not an invention of the New Testament. That's right here. That's the heart of David's great psalm a thousand years before Jesus appeared on this earth. And the Lord says to his son, verse eight, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. If you can picture hitting a bunch of clay pots with a hammer, you, you get the idea of what he's saying there. Messiah will reign over the nations in power. He will come and bring about their complete submission to him. All of these rulers that are rebelling against him. And then the psalm ends with a warning about the son. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son so that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all 
who take refuge in him. So the son deserves homage. The father will be angry and the son will be angry if, if the son does not receive that homage. The son himself is the refuge from his own wrath. He'll be angry and you'll perish in the way. His wrath may soon be kindled, but you're blessed if you take refuge in him. So he's a protection from the wrath of the father and the wrath of the son himself. The son is the refuge for us. And that's what it says. But the prayer in Acts chapter four only quotes the first verses of the psalm. Why is that? Because the psalm predicts and explains what has already happened. The rest of the psalm hasn't happened yet. That's the second coming of Christ. But this part has in some way already been fulfilled. So let's go back to Acts chapter 4, verse 25. It was talking about David. It says, Who, by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now, here's the interpretation. Verse 27, For truly, in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, they're praying to the Lord, whom you anointed, he's the Messiah, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So verse 25 is asking a question. It's a question it doesn't really ever answer. Why do the Gentiles rage? The answer is obvious. That's why they don't answer it. Because the world is sinful. The world is in rebellion against God. The world is blind to God and to its own wickedness, to the coming of judgment and to the Savior that God sent. The world constantly reaffirms the sin of our first parents in the garden, the sin we are born with, that we are rebels against God. So whether we're mean or nice, foolish or clever, educated or ignorant, the world is in rebellion against the holy creator of all things. Now notice in verse 25, they conspire, but they conspire in vain, in emptiness. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? Futile means empty. That's why the Borg say that resistance is futile. It's empty, right? The peoples of the earth devise plans and schemes and structures that will never stand up in the day God's son comes to establish his kingdom on the earth. But they think they will. They think they can stand against God, but they, not, they will not be able to do that. God rules, so opposition to him is the most futile thing anyone can do. You can't oppose God and succeed. So verse 26 emphasizes humanity's leaders. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And since national leaders carry power over the generality of mankind, all the people under them, their hostility to the true God takes that power and uses it to further the rebellion of men against God. And that happens in ways that are deeply woven into the structures of government and the structures of society. We see that in dramatic ways in our time, very much so. And since Jesus was God personally present on earth, the psalm foreshadows this cooperative venture of the leaders of men to murder Jesus. What happened to Jesus at Jerusalem was a narrowly focused 
picture of the world in opposition to God's son. So verse 27 explains how the events surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus fulfilled the words of that psalm. There's a curious blend of rivals who come together here to fight against God's anointed. Verse 27, truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So Jesus stood trial before both Pilate and Herod Antipas separately. In fact, Luke tells us that although Pontius Pilate and Herod had animosity toward one another, they didn't like each other on that day, but all the time before that day, on that very day that each man tried Jesus, and they did that separately, but they became friends. That's in Luke 23:12. They actually became friends over the murder of Jesus. Probably because Herod thought that Pilate was honoring him by trying to get rid of Jesus out of his uh, jurisdiction and move him over to Herod. But Herod probably thought that was a, a wonderful thing. So he, they became friends. The Jewish priests and the elders, they want Jesus dead. Herod didn't care. Pilate gave up Roman justice because he felt political pressure. So they're all working together. And Herod, remember, is not Jewish. He's an Idumean king. Pilate's a Gentile. And then the Jewish leaders. So the, there's the peoples of the earth, if you will. They're kind of conspiring together, the leaders of the people. So all of them had worldly interests that converged to murder God's son. It's in the prayer because the Christians knew that God had ordained this. It's in scripture that this is going to happen. It's all part of his sovereign purpose. Though the wicked people doing those things didn't know that they were serving God's sovereign purpose, but they were. So remember why they are praying. The government is threatening them that if they follow Jesus and proclaim him as the risen Lord and Savior, they're going to be in a lot of trouble. They're threatening them. So they're under threat, but here's the thing that the church recognizes. Just as with Jesus, God is sovereign over this as well. God's hand and God's purpose, verse 28. Those are the ruling factors in what occurs on planet Earth. God's hand and God's purpose. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestine to occur. The wickedness of men, the tragic circumstances that strike our cursed Earth, all of it, every, every cruel word, every bit of violence, every deadly germ that's floating through the air, it's all under God's providential rule of our planet. He has a purpose even in permitting evil to have its way for a period of time. It's purposeful. Persecution then is never an accident. God has never lost control. Everything is purposeful. Even if we don't see it or understand the purpose, God knows the purpose and he's infinite and we're really tiny so we accept that. That's true for all of us. That's true for everything that happens in our life. And we always have that anchor that God is in absolute control of everything. He's sovereign. God is sovereign and anything that happens, he has ordained according to his wisdom. But what if people suffer? Well, that should not surprise us. It should not surprise us. This world is temporary. Men are sinners, extraordinaire, so bad things happen. And the earth is cursed, so creation itself brings about horrible things. In fact, in Acts chap- 
not Acts, Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says creation longs to be redeemed itself. It groans. And so do we. We groan for a better world, for something that's not full of such danger and wickedness and cruelty and all of that. So we feel, we experience, we groan under the reality that human beings are wicked and may hurt us. And the earth itself is cursed. It may hurt us. It all testifies to God's judgment. And we testify in the midst of that to God's solution, which is his son Jesus sent to save us from all of it. Sometimes we testify to God's solution by enduring suffering ourselves. So suffering may be a part of our service to Christ in a fallen world. In fact, it often is. At some point in your life, you're bound to suffer. Some of you have suffered greatly. Others haven't much yet, but it'll come eventually. Suffering is a part of our service to Christ in a fallen world. So his extraordinary suffering, his suffering, was in perfect harmony with God's will. And our suffering also should be in harmony with God's will as well. That's what the early church realized. They're willing. They're willing. So it's really verse 29 that shows where their hearts are. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What are they praying for? Are they praying to avoid persecution? Are they praying primarily for their safety? Are they praying for a good place to hide? No. Take note of their threats. That's all they say with regard to their danger. Lord, take note of their threats. We know that you're, we know that you're sovereign and we're just asking you to recognize that we're under this threat. And they know that that's true. They're just rehearsing that great truth in their minds. And you know what those words do? Take note of their threats. What do those words do? They leave everything in God's hands. Take note of their threats. Okay, we're giving you that. All over the world, this kind of thing is happening every single day. In China, in Iran, in India, and many other lands where it is forbidden or extremely dangerous to preach the gospel, to tell people about Jesus Christ. Recently, I was rereading accounts of the Boxer Rebellion which is something that started in the, in the year 1900. It was a very violent anti-foreigner movement that spread across northern China and it often targeted Western missionaries with a vengeance. Seven missionaries uh, um, out of all the thousands that were there fled to Fenzhou in the Shanxi province believing that it was safe there. They were told that it would be safe there under the magistrate but the magistrate turned out to be pro-boxer in his um, sympathies and so they were put under guard and one of them uh, Lizzie Atwater who was pregnant at the time young mom wrote a letter to her parents on August 3rd 1900 which says this dear ones I long for a sight of your dear faces but I fear we shall not meet on earth I'm preparing for the end very quietly and calmly the Lord is wonderfully near and he will not fail me I was very restless and excited while there seemed to be a chance of life. But God has taken away that feeling and now I just pray for grace to meet the terrible end 
bravely. The pain will soon be over, and oh, the sweetness of the welcome above. My little baby will go with me. I think God will give it to me in heaven, and my dear mother will be so glad to see us. I cannot imagine the Savior's welcome. Oh, that will compensate for all these days of suspense. Dear ones, live near to God and cling less closely to earth. There is no other way by which we can receive that peace from God which passeth understanding. I must keep calm and still in these hours. I do not regret coming to China, but I am sorry I have done so little. My married life, two precious years, have been so very full of happiness. We will die together, my husband and I. I used to dread separation. If we escape now, it will be a miracle. I send my love to all of you and the dear friends who remember me. And then 12 days later, Lizzie and her husband and her baby and all the other missionaries were hacked to death by the boxer guards. And later, when Lizzie's parents uh, in Ohio uh, learned what happened to her and their son-in-law and their unborn granddaughter, they said, we do not begrudge them. We gave them to that needy land. China will yet believe the truth. And by the end of the Boxer Rebellion, 188 missionaries and their families were slaughtered during the Boxer Rebellion. They're all foreigners, people from the West. But well over 30,000 Chinese Christians perished during the Boxer Rebellion. And of course in the West, we're more familiar with the missionaries because those are the people that came from our people and we have written records from them like her letter and things like that. So we think about them. But 30,000 Chinese Christians gave up their lives, often to protect the missionaries or to try to, and they certainly wouldn't renounce Jesus. Today, 120 years later, it is Chinese voices that are being heard and raised. We, we know the writings of our people, the missionaries, but now it's Chinese voices that are speaking for themselves because Lizzie's parents were absolutely right. Many, many Chinese do believe the truth and they know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It's hard to get numbers, but most of the experts on the church in China say over 50 million, maybe 60 million, maybe more are committed Christians in China. They are standing on their own for Christ and they're telling their stories now. When the current big crackdown happened uh, on biblical Christianity, it started about two years ago. There's always been sort of this relationship with the government that was difficult. Um, Since the Cultural Revolution, there hadn't been that much direct oppression, but that started up again a couple years ago in in a bad way. And what emerged from that has been um, some really amazing things. And there's a, a document that would be worthy of Luther or Calvin or Minnow Simons or the great reformers that has kind of come to the fore. Uh, if history goes on, men like Wang Yi will be remembered uh, as famous heroes of the faith, just like those men were. He and his wife are in prison today for faithfully shepherding God's people apart from the state-approved communist church. There's a official church in China that technically you can be a Christian but they, they tell you what you can teach and what you can believe and what parts of the Bible they can, that you can teach and all that kind of stuff so most Christians are not in that they're in house churches or uh, whole networks huge networks of house churches that's where most Christians are and Pastor Yi was a pastor of one of those churches and he wrote 
a powerful declaration to be distributed the day he was taken into custody. He knew it was coming, so he had it prepared. And when he and his wife were arrested, he had it, um, his people publish it. And it's pretty amazing. It's really a document for our times. And it will be remembered if history goes on much longer. It's, it's kind of long, but I just want to read you a few portions of it. Wang Yi is his name, pastor. He says, as a pastor, my firm belief in the gospel, my teaching, and my rebuking of all evil proceeds from Christ's command in the gospel and from the unfathomable love of that glorious king. Every man's life is extremely short and God fervently commands the church to lead and call any man to repentance who is willing to repent. Christ is eager and willing to forgive all who turn from their sins. This is the goal of all the efforts of the church in China, to testify to the world about our Christ and to testify to the middle kingdom about the kingdom of heaven, to testify to earthly momentary lives about heavenly eternal life. This is also the pastoral calling that I have received. For this reason, I accept and respect the fact that this communist regime has been allowed by God to rule temporarily. As the Lord's servant John Calvin said, wicked rulers are the judgment of God on a wicked people. The goal being to urge God's people to repent and turn again toward him. For this reason, I am joyfully willing to submit myself to their enforcement of law as though submitting to the discipline and training of the Lord. At the same time, I believe that this communist regime's persecution against the church is a greatly wicked, unlawful action. As a pastor of a Christian church, I must denounce this wickedness openly and severely. The calling that I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods to disobey those human laws that disobey the Bible and God. My Savior Christ also requires me to joyfully bear all costs for disobeying wicked laws. As a pastor, my disobedience is one part of the gospel commission. Christ's great commission requires of us great disobedience. The goal of disobedience is not to change the world, but to testify about another world. If I am imprisoned for long or a short period of time, if I can help reduce the authority's fear of my faith and of my Savior, I'm very joyfully willing to help them in this way. But I know that only when I renounce all the wickedness of this persecution against the church and use peaceful means to disobey will I truly be able to help the souls of the authorities and law enforcement. I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority and that there is a freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. Separate, separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all of these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life and no one can raise me from the dead. And so respectable officers, stop committing evil. This is not for my benefit, but rather for yours and your children's. I plead earnestly with you to stay your hands 
For why should you be willing to pay the price of eternal damnation in hell for the sake of a lowly sinner such as I? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my King and the King of the whole earth, yesterday, today, and forever. I am his servant, and I am imprisoned because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God, and I will joyfully, joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. That man can write, huh? Very simple, straightforward, clear. And rereading Pastor Yee's declaration this week made me think a lot about the experience of, of prison life. He's in a Chinese prison today. His wife's in some other prison somewhere. Their kids are gone. They're taken away. Um, They have no legal rights whatsoever in those prisons. And they're completely at the mercy of the state. And whatever they are doing to them, they are enduring it for the sake of Christ. Pastor Yi understands what all Christians should understand, that we are here for God's purposes to be served. That's why we exist That's why we're called. That's why we're saved. In the light of eternal glory, there's no loss here that can compare, but this is the world we live in. And to give it all up for him, that takes a lot of faith. And that's what our Acts 4 Christians understand, these early Christians. They have exactly the same Holy Spirit teaching them exactly the same thing and giving the exact same truth to their heart and they lived it just like these Chinese Christians today are living it. The apostles and other disciples in the book of Acts, they're not planning to slow down. They're not planning to go hide. They ask for boldness. Verse 29, now Lord take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. They're not stopping. Their expectation is that God will continue working through them as he always has been. Verse 30, while you extend your hand to heal and signed and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Business as usual for us. That's their attitude. Pure faith, pure trust. And the Lord responds to this God-centered, selfless prayer in a very dramatic way. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. What is the result of being filled with the Spirit this time? Not tongues. Boldness. They wanted to speak with confidence. That was their desire. And he gave them their desire in a big way. Now listen, I know God is a compassionate father and he answers prayers, big prayers and small prayers. Peter tells us we can cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. That's all true. Nothing is too small for God to be concerned about in your life. But I also think God loves it when our prayers are built around his purposes. When we focus on what he wants done in the world and our prayers are directed primarily towards those things. He knows what really matters. Eternal life and the salvation of sinners. That's his great plan. That's what he's doing in the world. And that's what the church is for. And that's why you are called to be his child. Our greatest joy and privilege is to be part of that redemptive plan of God in the world in our day can you give all fears to him and pray for a confident witness that's how Jesus became known throughout the world because this early church did that 
and Christians are doing that today all over the world. You know, we support some missionaries in India and our, our good friend Lankantong Lianza, he always is sending out all this information and all this stuff and it's been really not coming out much lately. And we just recently got just pictures and he said, do not post these pictures online because there's a Hindu nationalist government in China now and his people, his missionary um, that are out working with these tribal groups are now under a lot of pressure. Some have been threatened, just like we see here, and uh, they're risking their lives, but they're continuing their work. The pictures are of people getting baptized, of classes in uh, secret locations, and people preaching the gospel. That's still going on. It's still going on. We have a lost generation to win in our culture, and we need to be about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the great example we see here in the early church. We know that's why Christianity succeeded. You filled them with the Holy Spirit because they sought you. They sought boldness from you. They gave you their lives. They trusted your sovereign will. They knew that suffering might be a part of being faithful and they were willing to be faithful. We just thank you for that example. May you inspire us and encourage us to be faithful to you no matter what happens. And may we be bold witnesses for Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, next time we'll see how that church began to operate under these conditions. We'll see you next time.